so, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. I see. The National Security Agency has obtained access to the central servers of nine major Internet companies, including Google, Microsoft, Apple, Yahoo, and Facebook. Surveillance capitalism unilaterally claims our private human experience as a free source of raw material for its own production processes. It's time to break up America's tech giants. We are living in an age of unprecedented concentrations of wealth, knowledge, and power. Whereas the 20th century saw a shift from industrialization to financialization, the market giants of the 21st century are the tech companies of Silicon Valley. In 2018, Apple became the world's first trillion dollar company. They have now been joined by Amazon and Microsoft. Every day, 1.5 billion of us scroll through Facebook, and we make 3.5 billion searches on Google. One third of our annual online retail spending in the US now goes to Amazon. From liking photos on Instagram, ordering rides on Uber, or streaming films on Prime, these companies have seamlessly integrated interactive technology into the fabric of our intimate everyday lives. These platforms define the modern experience. Yet what is the logic driving these companies, and why does this matter? Why is data so valuable? What policies are on the table to address the rise of big tech? And how do we go beyond to build progressive, radical, and democratic alternatives? In this first episode of Our Voices, a podcast brought to you by Open Democracy, we will explore the debate over big tech and data ownership, imagining a world where we put data back into our hands to benefit the collective, not the private few. In our time, surveillance capitalism claims private human experience for the market dynamic as a free source of raw material that is translated into behavioral data. These data are then combined with advanced computational abilities to create predictions, predictions of what we will do, predictions of our behavior, predictions of what we will do now, soon, and later. And these predictions are then sold to business customers in a new kind of marketplace that trades exclusively in human futures. That was Shoshana Zuboff, a professor at Harvard Business School and a leading thinker on information technology. In her recently acclaimed book, Zuboff sets out a logical framework for how these companies operate, which she labels surveillance capitalism. In her understanding, the resource fueling this new economy is data. Data, when collected and analyzed in mass by powerful algorithms, creates valuable predictive models of human behavior and preferences, which are then sold to the real consumers, like advertisers or political campaigns. This means that what Zuboff calls an extraction imperative is created, a race to collect as much data as possible. 
So the creation of new technology is tailored to maximize user engagement. Whether we realize it or not, we are being mined for data. What's this little thing? Well, it's Google Home Mini. You put it in your house and control it with your voice. Hey Google, play my fun playlist. Okay, playing now. It's also a remote control, an alarm clock, and a sous chef. Let it cool for 10 minutes. Let's take the recent smart home phenomenon. These devices are being offloaded into the consumer market at deflated prices, sold as convenience products, but also as mechanisms of data extraction. Every time you ask Alexa to do your weekly shopping, play your favorite track, or call a friend, it is collecting raw data to feed the extraction imperative. So why does this business model matter? Why should we care about mass data accumulation? If you ask people how they feel about big tech companies using their data, you tend to get two reactions. Either you get an attitude of indifference, something like, I understand this is happening, but I have nothing to hide, and even if I did care, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. And perhaps more commonly, the convenience argument. I don't mind who collects my data. These companies are only using it to make my life easier. But a growing number of scholars and activists believe that these responses misrepresent the significant power of these platforms. As the influence of big tech over the individual grows with data accumulation, power dynamics intensify, consolidating pre-existing tendencies of bias and discrimination. Invasive breaches of our private information threaten our fundamental right to privacy, whilst the ability to manipulate everyday interactions threatens our agency and with it the very notion of individual autonomy. With intense competition for financial rewards, the incentive for more sophisticated forms of intrusion and manipulation likewise intensify. As it stands, there is little to prevent major tech companies which seek to datify every aspect of our daily lives. Nick Cernak, an academic in digital humanities at King's College London and author of the book Platform Capitalism, tells us more. It's inherent within capitalism that it's going to do these things, particularly when personal data becomes such a, a powerful way to generate money. I won't say it generates money in itself, but it's a way to generate money. And given particularly the sort of economic slump that we're in and continue to be in since the 2008 crisis, Capitalists are going to continue to push for every way to make money that they possibly can. They're going to fight against any sort of regulation or reform of these things. Uh, and I don't see reform being sufficient to sort of get rid of these problems. For people like Nick Cernak, understanding data as part of a drive to constantly extract value sees it not as a new age of surveillance, but as part of a longer-term trend inherent within capitalism's economic logic an effort to enclose all aspects of the social commons into the market dynamic. In this sense, many argue that the problems of data ownership fall under the broader concerns with capitalism's economic logic. With the constant drive for profit, wealth under capitalism tends to accumulate, creating significant inequalities of resources. Data is no exception. As major tech companies benefit from economies of scale, the natural tendency of data collection is toward monopolization of the digital infrastructure. The resulting wealth and power dynamics between users and these firms reflect historic inequities within the global economic order. While these tech companies have taken advantage of a race to the bottom to produce many of their physical products, they have also expanded their presence in the global south. We asked Anita Gu Murti from IT for Change to tell us more. 
American companies and a few others from China have been taking away the data from the global south. This data has allowed them to build a first mover advantage and owing to this first mover advantage, they have become monopolies. If this advantage, let us say, gets inverted on account of the fact that data is able to be retained in countries of the global south, that will be a tremendous loss because the knowledge paradigm of the 21st century depends on whether you can make use of your data, you can make good the data pools that are generated in your jurisdiction and territory. This globalized system of data accumulation contains a vast opportunity cost. Whilst the big tech companies of Silicon Valley channel data for profit generation, like the targeting of adverts to make you buy products, we could instead be utilizing these resources for the benefit of people, for infrastructure, healthcare, and transitioning to a zero carbon future. So how can this be done? How do we transition away from a data for profit system? GDPR, otherwise known as the General Data Protection Regulation, is a new regulation that provides citizens of the EU with greater control over their personal data and assurances that their information is being securely protected across Europe, regardless of whether the data processing takes place in the EU or not. Whether you're a five-person business One popular mechanism being examined by policymakers is regulation. Remember all of those emails flooding your inbox? Legislation such as the General Data Protection Regulation from the European Union, introduced in May of 2018, is designed to limit the invasive power of platform companies, setting out boundaries for data extraction and laying out the rules for an individual's privacy. For instance, under GDPR, sites must notify users of data they collect and opt in or consent to that data being gathered. Individuals now also have the right to have their data erased if requested. Despite this progress, most agree that more proactive policies are needed. Both in the U.S. and Europe, consensus has grown around the introduction of antitrust and competition laws to deal with the monopolistic tendencies of big tech. In the U.S., the charge for new competition laws is being led by 2020 Democratic presidential nominee Elizabeth Warren. Facebook could A get better on privacy, or B, they could just buy out the competition. What did Facebook choose? Just buy out the competition. No, giants are not allowed to buy out the competition. The competition has to be given a chance to thrive, grow, and either the giant gets better or the giant dies. Warren advocates breaking up big tech by separating ownership of the marketplace from producers using that platform. Any platform with an annual global revenue of $25 billion or more would be prohibited from operating on their own marketplace. This would affect Amazon Marketplace, Google's Ad Exchange, and Google Search. She also intends to appoint regulators committed to reversing illegal and anti-competitive tech mergers. Beyond Warren, there is also bipartisan support for antitrust scrutiny. The Justice Department and FTC are opening up antitrust investigations into Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple, whilst Congress is similarly looking into the competitive practices of these tech giants. In Europe earlier this year, the EU fined Google 1.5 billion euros for antitrust violations in the online advertising market. Similar fines have also been leveled against Facebook after its acquisition of WhatsApp. 
In the UK this past June, then-Prime Minister Theresa May announced the creation of a digital markets unit to undertake an industry-led tech competitiveness study. The report concluded that competition in the tech markets should be promoted through merger control and antitrust mechanisms. Yet do these regulatory or antitrust policies actually strike at the heart of the problem of data extraction? Nick Cernak thinks not. I think when you look at what the actual problems are that we're interested in, uh, they don't come from the size of these companies, they come from competition. So the reason why these companies want to collect more and more data uh, is because they're competing against each other for advertising share, for instance, or for more personalization, which draws in more users. So it's not that these companies are too big, it's that they're competing with each other, which forces them to sort of do this stuff. Um, another example is competition for attention. So one of the reasons why Twitter hasn't really cracked down on, say, Nazis flourishing on, on its website uh, is simply because it causes engagement, it causes users. Uh, why has YouTube not cracked down on the sort of far-right radicalization on its platform? Because it brings in more users, brings in more engagement and more eyeballs. So this competition for attention um, is what is causing a lot of the problems with um, you know, fake news, far-right radicalization, the sort of you know, polarization of politics online. Um, we can trace that all to competition, not to the size of these companies. In addition to competition law, many, including prominent whistleblower during the Cambridge Analytica scandal, Brittany Kaiser, advocate the idea of individual data ownership. In this scenario, big tech companies would be legally obliged to pay each individual for the data they are extracting. But personal data, before it is processed and analyzed, has virtually no value. Significant value is generated only when this data is collected as part of a larger pool, which can then be processed and analyzed to provide meaningful results or predictions. Moreover, Cernak believes individual data ownership would only exacerbate existing inequalities. The idea of getting paid for our data effectively turns it into a market for data. And I think that's really problematic and shouldn't be um, the left's approach to this stuff. But the unintended consequences are effectively things like sort of the inequality of privacy. So if you're rich, you don't need the money from selling your data. So you simply have your privacy. If you're poor, you're incentivized instead to sell all of your personal data. Um, and the more you know, personal it is, the more valuable it is. So there's real inequalities built into this sort of system where effectively privacy becomes a market rather than something like a basic right. Given the compulsive nature of capitalist competition, an adequate response must tackle the incentive structure at the root of this extraction imperative. What Cernak proposes is the idea of collective data funds. The idea of a data fund is something that is becoming more politically popular, from ideas of a national fund to data pools owned and organized by local and municipal governments. In this proposal, ownership of data is transferred into public hands, with value directly reinvested into public services. For Cernak, this form of data ownership holds significant advantages. Practically, what I think is quite useful about this is that um, you can have that collective ownership where you've democratically determined what the rules of access are for this data, you can take various measures to ensure as much anonymity as possible with this data. And you can also enable sort of personal fine-grained controls over the data as well. So you can imagine a sort of system where a sort of default setting is that you give some of your data, which is not all that personal, 
But then you have the option to give maybe more data if you feel like, you know, say your medical history would be um, really useful for researchers, you could give away that data to the data fund. Or if you wanted to stay, keep more privacy, you'd have the option to sort of completely opt out. Criticisms of this idea generally surface around feasibility of creating large, anonymized pools of data. This is particularly the case when ownership of these pools is entrusted to the state. Concerns appear over use of public data by the national security apparatus and the possibility of mass surveillance. These have been raised, especially in light of NSA revelations exposed by Edward Snowden. We begin with news that the National Security Agency has obtained access to the central servers of nine major internet companies, including Google, Microsoft, Apple, Yahoo, and Facebook. The Guardian and the Washington Post revealed the top-secret program on Thursday, codenamed PRISM, after they obtained several slides from a 41-page training presentation for senior intelligence analysts. It explains how PRISM allows them to access emails, documents, audio and video chats, photographs, documents, and connection logs that allow them to track a person or trace their connections to others. If the state has unlimited access to valuable data sets on the population, it poses a serious threat to our civil liberties. This is evident in the day-to-day -day workings of today's Chinese state, whose repression is enabled by the swaths of personal data collected on the population, which informs methods of coerced social cohesion. Therefore, data pools need to be properly anonymized through encryption techniques, while a definitive separation from the national security architecture must be guaranteed. Cernic believes that these privacy assurances are possible under collective data funds. And there's some people who sort of scoff at this idea that it's possible, but we have a really good example in the US of a communication system which the government would love to spy on, but we've built up a series of legal rules to prevent that from happening, and that's the US Postal Service which is owned by the government and has been, you know, um, in control by the government for over 100 years now. But they built in privacy rules from the beginning, which meant that um, today, for instance, it's much more difficult for the NSA to get data from the Postal Service that the government owns than it is from Facebook. So I, I think we can pass legislation which actually enables privacy to be preserved in a much better way than it is right now. And on top of that, we can also add technical means, which mean that this stuff is encrypted, that it's kept accountable, that there's unforgeable ways of seeing who's accessed this data, what they've done with it. Um, so yeah, I do think there are technical and legal ways to ensure privacy in it. But before we rush into models of large-scale data funds, we need to consider the practicalities of such projects. To do this, it is useful to examine local, municipally-driven projects already being trialed around the world demonstrating that an alternative is possible. Prominent amongst these in Europe is the work of DECODE. DECODE is a European project that want to give back data sovereignty to citizens, building open source tools that are decentralized, privacy enhancing and rights respecting. There are 14 partners, two big cities, Barcelona and Amsterdam, cryptography experts, technologists, uh, economists and sociologists that are coming together to build tools that give back control of data to citizens. DECODE is testing multiple initiatives that seek to place both data and the digital infrastructure back into the hands of the public, creating secure platforms to engage in local initiatives. For example, the DECIDEM project involving the Barcelona City Council is a democratic platform with more than 60,000 users 
that provides a secure app for petitions, reporting civic issues, and taking part in local policymaking. Matthew Lawrence, founder of the think tank Commonwealth, specializing in democratic forms of ownership, believes these local examples demonstrate the possibility of repurposing the value of public data. But I think the example in places like Ghent, in Barcelona, in Amsterdam, suggests that actually this tension or this choice, this sort of fork in the road between, on the one hand, the rise and expanding power of universal platforms that enclose, which dominate, which sort of basically soar ahead of all other actors uh, and have immense infrastructural power, of either reclaiming of digital sovereignty in which sort of digital technologies and data, their access, their control rights, their direction, their use is reshaped to expand human flourishing, you know, clearly these examples show that it is possible with imagination, with institutional innovation, with sort of, you know, political bravery to create alternative architectures of the future relative to where we're heading in the present. So how can we successfully scale up similar projects to compete in the rest of the world when the resources and market share of existing tech platforms are so dominant? Ultimately, this boils down to politics, a matter of power and distribution. We could have an alternative government that might well be committed to exactly those points about expanding collective rights to data, about rethinking sort of the creation of data worlds around the ownership of digital infrastructure. I think Labour would be missing, and indeed all, you know, Plaid Cameroon and the SNP and indeed you know, progressive left parties everywhere would be missing a trick if they didn't come up with very serious policies for both taming the power of existing actors, but actually much more important in some ways, scaling up democratic alternatives. And I think if you can get that right, whether it's a municipal, place-based, whether it's national, I think you know that sense of owning the future, the sense of you know the left being about modernity and about sort of the reshaping direction of technological development towards emancipatory ends. You know, I think if you know if Labour or the wider left aren't on that train, then they're definitely missing a trick. As the neoliberal consensus that has gripped Western politics for the best part of 40 years begins to unfold, we are seeing a polarization. On the one hand, an increasingly radical and divisive politics, spearheaded by an array of populist politicians. But on the other, a radical progressive agenda, one built around a Green New Deal, universal health care, and eradicating poverty. As one of the most valuable resources available to humanity today, there is no doubt that data will play a central role in organizing and implementing these future projects. For anyone seeking a positive radical politics, data must be on the agenda. National context matters. The United States has the power and thus the responsibility to directly confront these global tech giants. Whereas countries like the UK, with valuable data assets such as the NHS and TFL, must play a leading role in initiating alternative data models. But fundamentally, this is a global problem. We need to reimagine possibilities for a world of data outside the existing narrative. The choice can no longer be between the totalizing control of the Chinese state or America's private profit platforms. Perhaps what we need is a non-aligned movement for data, a progressive international movement, a coalition of states outside these hegemons that reclaim the imagination from Bezos and Zuckerberg. Whatever happens, who owns and controls our data will be one of the defining issues of our age.
This podcast was brought to you by Our Economy at Open Democracy. It was presented by Aaron White and the producer was Freddie Stewart. Audio clips came from Democracy Now!, Super Office Network, Commercials and Nesta, the Innovation Foundation. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. For more of our latest content, you can find us at opendemocracy.net slash our economy. That's opendemocracy.net slash our economy.